0: One of Jesus' most famous rebukes of all time can be found in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 21, in which Jesus said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. The Pharisees and the Herodians had conspired to try to trap him and to catch him in his words, and they had asked him whether or not it was lawful to pay tax to Caesar. They had hoped that with whatever answer he might give, they could then turn around and use that as a means to arrest and even ultimately execute him. And yet in the story, they were utterly amazed and astounded by the wisdom of Jesus that he offered in his answer. We can read the whole story in Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 15, where it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In verse 22, when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. They marveled at the wisdom of Jesus Christ. So what exactly is going on here, and what exactly does Jesus' answer mean? What does it mean to render to God. I want us to take a look at this story, see who it is that's talking to Jesus, what their plan was, what Jesus' answer was, and then some lessons that we can learn from that. Before we do that though, would you bow with me in prayer? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we lift you up and we praise you because you are awesome and powerful. You are the great God who has created all things and it's by your power that they are sustained. You have brought us to this day You have kept us alive. You've given us food to eat and clothes to wear and shelter to protect us from the elements. You've provided us with friends and with family. But most of all, you provided us with your Son whose sacrifice causes us to strive to worship you and to serve and edify one another. you provided us with the Spirit who gave your Word that we might follow it and obey and glorify you. Father, we pray that you strengthen us tonight to understand what it means to render to you the things that are yours. And Father, we pray that you strengthen us to obey what you have have asked. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. As we consider Matthew chapter 22, I think the very first thing that we need to recognize is the enemies that were facing Jesus here. There were two groups of people that were attacking Jesus in this scenario. One of them we talk about a lot, one of them we don't talk about very much at all. The first, of course, is the Pharisees. And we've heard a lot about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were separatists. In fact, the word Pharisee, that's what it meant was to separate, coming from the Hebrew word parash. They They were ones that tried to keep themselves separate from everyone else. In fact, according to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, Pharisees were those who carefully kept themselves from any legal contamination, distinguishing themselves by their care in such matters from the common people. You see that? Listen to that again. They were those who carefully kept themselves from any legal contamination, distinguishing themselves by their care in such matters from the common people. Everyone else was just common But the Pharisees would lift themselves up to a separate and higher level. And they did that, of course, by adding all kinds of traditions to the law of God that would set them apart and make them look more spiritual. But they had some problems. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 3 demonstrates that sometimes in their desire to be separate from everyone else, they actually nullified the law of God. In Matthew 15:3, 3, Jesus answered them, why do you break the commandment or nullify the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? We also find that because of their desire to be separate in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 4, that sometimes they added heavy burdens to the law and yet they themselves wouldn't necessarily follow them. It says in Matthew 23, 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them With their finger. So the Pharisees nullified the law of God. Sometimes they added to the law of God. But their main problem was the fact that they did all of these things as an outward display of righteousness to separate themselves from all those common people so that they would look more holy than all the rest of us rabble throughout the world. But they never really paid attention to the things that would really distinguish them from the worldly. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, but the outside also may be clean. And he continues with that kind of rebuke. The Pharisees were interested in what was on the outside, but not what was on the inside. They wanted to look to others like they were distinct and separate, but they weren't really worried about what really needed to take place in order to be distinguished from the world and to be a true servant of God. Now, the Pharisees were, for the most part, a religious sect, as you can tell by that description. However, their religion and their philosophical ideologies also led them to some political stances. They were extremely nationalistic. Not only did they want to be separate from all the Jews, they recognized that the Jews were to be separate from all the world. They had a great deal of national pride. They remembered back the Judas Maccabeus who had had thrown the Greeks out. And they wanted to do the same thing with the Romans. They despised Rome. They despised all who would ally themselves with Rome, especially among the Jews. To them, the the Jews who would ally themselves with Rome were, were like traitors. They were treasonous. So much did they despise any contact or subservience to Rome. Sometimes they even tried to pretend like it didn't even exist. John chapter 8 and verse 33 demonstrates that. John chapter 8 and verse 33, Jesus had told them, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And their response was, hey, we're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? We've never been enslaved to anyone. Oh, I know that captivity in Assyria and that captivity in Babylon, but that didn't really count. And then, of course, I realized we were subservient to the Medo-Persians and and then the Greeks, but that really wasn't anything. And, of course, the Romans are in charge of things now, but really, we're free. We're not slaves of anyone. It's like they tried to pretend that none of that ever happened. It just wasn't true. So the Pharisees, staunchly nationalistic, hated anything to do with the Romans, wanted to be separate from that. But then there was the second group. The second group we actually don't know very much about. We certainly don't see them very often in the Scriptures. They weren't real major players. We only see them a couple of times. But these are the Herodians. And the name of their little group really tells us all that we need to know. They were supporters of the Herods. The Herods family. was a the family that had pretended to be Jews and tried to come in and fit in among the Jews, but they were also aligning themselves with the Romans. Herod the Great wanted to play both sides of the fence. And so while he submitted himself to Rome and he allowed Rome to lift him up and make him king over the Jews, he also tried to pacify his subjects and and pretend that he was also some great follower of God and truly a part of this national Israel by rebuilding and beautifying their temple. And his descendants tried to play that same kind of game, kind of trying to walk both sides of the fence, being with Rome and with the Jews, all at the same time. Now you can see how this is going to be a problem with the Pharisees, isn't it? And they're like the antithesis of the Pharisees. The Herodians really didn't have a religious claim. Theirs was almost strictly a political sect. But their politics, no doubt, impacted their religion. And they sold out. They sold out to the world as far as the Pharisees were concerned. And these Herodians, they were not nationalistic at all. Rather, they thought it was great to be with Rome. They thought it was great to see Herod make this connection with Rome. In fact, there's even some indication historically that the Herodians, far from looking for a Jewish Messiah that would overthrow the Romans, some of them, it appears, even believe that Herod was the Messiah. Now, you can see where they are. If somebody refuses to pay tax to the emperor, that they uphold that their Messiah is following, that's going to upset them quite a bit. So these are the players. These are the enemies of Jesus that are taking him on. But they made a big mistake thinking that they could trap Jesus. Let's think about the trap for just a moment. The Pharisees and the Herodians, natural born enemies, come together to try to trap Jesus in His words. To get Him to say something that's going to cause them to be able to arrest Him and persecute Him and even execute Him. And they seemingly believed that they had come up with a foolproof plan. They were going to be able to ask Him this just very simple yes or no question. And whatever answer He gave, they were going to be able to use it against Him to destroy His ministry, to destroy His work, to destroy His influence among the people. Think about it for just a moment. Now, hold on before I get ahead of myself. I, I just want you to realize, you see, this question, is it lawful to pay tax to Caesar, was actually one that the Pharisees and the Herodians debated all the time. The Pharisees, of course, is the nationalistic folks among the Jews who, who thought Jews were the, the supreme race and they were never subservient to anyone. They felt like if they were paying taxes to Caesar, they were demonstrating subservience to him instead of God. And so they argued that we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. The Herodians, believing that the Jews should get with the program and catch up to modern times and realize that Rome is where it's at, they viewed that if you didn't pay the taxes, you were a traitor. So they argued back and forth. But they come together to ask this question of Jesus, and you know what? They weren't asking to find out, well, whose side is Jesus on? They weren't asking to find out which side can we get him on so he can be in our court? They actually didn't care which way he answered. Because no matter whose side he took in that matter, they were going to back away and let the other guys trample him. What would happen if Jesus said, "No. no, we don't have to pay taxes. We don't pay taxes to Caesar. If we pay taxes to Caesar, we're not being subservient to God. I side with the Pharisees on this. Then the Pharisees were going to back away and allow the Herodians to accuse him of being a traitor. In fact, when they had him before the magistrates, they even, uh, before the authorities, I should say, they even said something about him refusing to pay taxes, despite this whole story. But what if he said yes? What if he said, oh, yes, you have to pay taxes? We've got to show our allegiance to Caesar through taxes. I'm with the Herodians on that one. Well then the Pharisees would be then the Herodians would back away from Jesus, and the Pharisees would be able to discredit him among the people. And then they'd be able to arrest him for whatever reason they wanted. Remember from Luke chapter twenty and verse nineteen a parallel account of this story. It begins by telling us in Luke chapter 20 and verse 19 that the scribes who would have been Pharisees and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour for they perceived that he had told this parable against them but they feared the people so they watched him and sent spies and who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. You see, they feared the people so if he said, yes, we're supposed to pay taxes, then the Pharisees could turn around and tell the people, see... He's not a messiah. He's a supporter of Caesar. How can you believe he's the one that's going to come in and provide us freedom? And discrediting him in front of the people, they would then no longer have to fear the people and be able to arrest Jesus on whatever charge they wanted, persecute and execute him and get him out of the way. It seems like a no-win situation. No matter how he answers, he's in trouble. And yet, by the time Jesus got done, all they could do is marvel in silence and walk away. So how did Jesus accomplish that? Jesus answered. Now, of course, we know the basic part of his answer. He said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. For our, from our perspective, at the surface level, it may seem to us that what Jesus did was kind of find a middle-of-the-road answer where he was able to pull both sides together and, for, and mold this answer that would seem to please both of them. It seems that he sides with the Herodians at first when he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's like he's saying, yes, we are supposed to pay taxes, but then at the end of it, but render to God the things that are God's. It's like he's saying, okay, but really, what's really important with the Pharisees is that we submit to God. And so on the surface, it might seem that he's tried to mold this answer that's going to please both of them, but but actually in reality, his answer would only inflame both of them even more because that's not really what he was saying at all. He wasn't finding a middle road answer that pleased both of them. He cut to the chase and gave them the truth that would upset them both and yet leave them in a position to still be unable to do anything to him because they still feared the people who were in awe and marveled at his wisdom. I just want you to think about what he did in this answer. There's three things that you need to notice. The very first thing is that Jesus, first of all, demonstrated the hypocrisy of his questioners. There, in verse 18, Jesus recognized their malice. He understood that this wasn't an honest question. He just said it. Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Jesus realized, I know what you're doing. You don't care about my answer to this question. You don't care what I say. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You're testing me. You're trying to trap me. Jesus revealed exactly what these people were doing. And all the people who were listening were able to recognize it for what it was as well. He diffused the situation by pointing out exactly what was going on and he cut cut to the chase with the questioner saying, you guys are just a bunch of hypocrites. You don't care. You're just trying to trap me. And yet Jesus knowing his wise answer, continued on and answered their question. The second thing Jesus did is he shattered the Pharisees' claim to freedom. Remember in John eight thirty three, they tried to claim, look, we're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. But there in verses 20, or excuse me, back up, there in verse 19 through 21, Jesus shattered that claim. He said, show me a coin for the tax. They brought him one. He says, whose image is on it? Well, it's Caesar's. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I mean, this is basically a slap in the face of the Pharisees who wanted to claim that they weren't subservient to anybody. They didn't submit to anyone, and yet the money that they clung to. Whose was it? Caesar's. Caesar's image was on it. That demonstrated this money was only distributed by the authority of Caesar. And what Jesus basically pointed out to the Pharisees is look, if you guys want to claim freedom from any other nation, you don't do it by not paying taxes, you do it by not using their money. If you're going to use the money that Caesar is going to distribute, then you have to give up the fact that he's got some rights over you. You aren't free, you're slaves. You're using someone else's money. This is not Jewish money. This is Roman money. Jewish money wouldn't count for anything. If you're going to turn away from paying taxes to Caesar, Pharisees, you need to quit using his money. And the third thing that Jesus did in this answer is that he cut right down to the heart of the matter. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Now, for a long time, what I viewed that to mean was, well, there's a certain percentage of this money that belongs to the government. It's their money. They're the ones that control it. And so we owe them a certain percentage, and we need to render to them what is their due. But at the same time, we owe God. And so we also have to take a certain percentage of whatever money we have, and we need to devote that to God's work. But that's not what Jesus is saying here at all. Jesus is not saying give a certain percentage that's due to the government and then give a certain percentage that's due to God. He's not saying that at all. I want you to think about this. What was it that belonged to Caesar? The money. Why did it belong to Caesar? Because Caesar's image was on it. How do we know it belongs to Caesar? Caesar's image is on it. So now the question is, how do we know what belongs to God? God's image is on it. Can you think of something that the Bible tells us was created in the image of God? Genesis 1 and verse 26. God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. It's not our money that bears God's image. It's us. And so what is it when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's? What is it that belongs to God that is supposed to be rendered to him? Us. That's what Jesus is saying. Give yourself to God. Because His image is on you. You belong to Him. You are only here by His authority and by His grace. Caesar allows you to have the money, and so yes, you need to render unto Caesar the taxes that he demands. But you're only here because God allows you to be here. And so you need to render yourselves to God. What an amazing answer. And the Pharisees and the Herodians were stopped dead in their tracks. And there was nothing they could say to them. Their hypocrisy was revealed. And I hope that we today, as we deal with those who would act against us, could have such wisdom. But before we end, let's think about some lessons that we gain from this, some things that we learn from Jesus' answer. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. The very first lesson that I think we can learn from that is that rendering to God resolves a lot of behavior issues. You take a look at this debate that the Pharisees and the Herodians had, and they argued it back and forth, whether or not they had to pay taxes to Caesar. And Jesus' answer demonstrates, you know what, if you just give yourself to God, a lot of these questions are dealt with. The Pharisees and the Herodians, their service to God wasn't about service. It wasn't about sacrificing themselves for God. It was about selfishness, about putting themselves first. The Pharisees wanting to show themselves as more righteous than everyone else, and the Herodians wanting to have the power that came with political influence. It was all about self. And what Jesus says is, you know what, if you guys would just be about God and about serving Him and giving yourselves over to Him, then all these questions would be dealt with. Isn't it that way? Isn't it that way today? Think about how many arguments we have with people. You know, the fact is, most of us don't struggle with what is right. We struggle with wanting to do what is right. And because we haven't fully given ourselves over to God, we can justify anything. And come up with all kinds of arguments about why we can do anything or, or don't have to do certain things. And we know in our heart of hearts what's right. We know what God has said. But we don't really want to do that. And so we justify Whatever we want to do. The Pharisees, had they understood that they were supposed to give themselves to God, they would have recognized that, look, the government is just God's, uh, God's tool. They didn't have to wait for Paul to say that in Romans 13. They could have learned it from Daniel chapter 2 and the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had of the statue and the kingdoms that God was going to establish. And the Herodians, if they had given themselves over to God while they recognized that they could submit themselves to the governing authorities, that wouldn't mean that they could sell themselves out to the immoralities of that government. What about us today? If we first give ourselves to God, how many questions are dealt with? That's the point of 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 5. There they were talking about the mercy that the Corinthians were going to have in helping the Judeans through the famine. It's talking about their collection. And Paul used the Macedonians as an example and all that they did and how they went beyond what he ever thought they would. Why did they do it? He said, they did this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to us. So often, we argue about so many things. But if we would just give ourselves to God and then to whatever He has asked by His will, the arguments could be resolved. Rendering unto God resolves behavior issues. The second thing we recognize from this is that submitting to the government does not deny submission to God. There are some people, even Christians, that would, well, I can't take the Pledge of Allegiance because my allegiance is supposed to be God and only to God, and that's it. But that's not what the Scripture demonstrates to us. The Scripture demonstrates to us that the governing authorities are set in place by God. And when we render our allegiance to the government, we're actually through that rendering our allegiance to God. Look in Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, Romans 13 verse 1 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, Excuse me. and those who resist will incur judgment. Down in verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. What Paul points out is the government is here because God has put it there. And therefore, we subject ourselves to that government. We abide by its rules and by its laws. And as we submit to that government, we are submitting to God. As we rebel against that government, as we violate the laws that that government has created, then we are rebelling against God and violating God's law. Peter repeated the same thing. In first Peter chapter two and verse thirteen, where he says, 1 Peter two and verse thirteen. In first Peter two and verse thirteen, Peter said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. See what Peter's saying? The same thing as Paul. We're supposed to submit to those governing authorities because they are established by God. There's only one exception to that, demonstrated by Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, and we probably all thought of it as I've been saying that where Peter said we must obey God rather than man. If the governing authorities have instituted a law that causes us to violate the law of God, then we're supposed to obey God rather than man. But any law that doesn't cause us to violate God's law, we're supposed to follow and submit to. I realize that God hasn't made any laws about taxes, and we might like to say, well, God didn't say anything about taxes, so I don't really have to do that. No, 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 that's not the point. The tax laws don't cause us to violate God's law, therefore we're supposed to submit to them. The speed laws don't violate God's law, therefore we're supposed to submit to them. you understand? That's that's the way that's supposed to work. Because when we submit to God, we submit to the governing authorities that He has established. The third thing that we recognize from this is that rendering to God does not mean separatism. The Pharisees tried to be separate in a certain way. We've heard about the Essenes who went even further than they did. And throughout all of history, since Christianity has begun, there have been different groups that tried to separate themselves. They wanted to pursue holiness. They wanted to give themselves to God. And so they went out in the wilderness and established communes and and, and set up uh, monasteries and nunneries. And now we're going to devote ourselves to God and give ourselves completely over to God. And the way we're going to do it is by being completely separate from the world. But that's not the way it works. Jesus here demonstrated that submission to God and rendering to God doesn't mean going outside of the world. It means living for God within the world. We know what Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, in which Paul wrote that we are supposed to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are supposed to be different from the world. But notice 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, Paul said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all being the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. The implication there is, Paul said, Look, you. If you are going to avoid all the sinners, you'd have to leave the world. The implication is we're not expecting you to leave the world. God is not expecting you to leave the world. You're in the world. You're not of the world. You don't become holy and render yourself to God by leaving the world. Rather, you become holy and render yourself to God by living in the world, but distinguishing yourself by submitting to God and living His way. And by that means, we will draw others to Christ. So that they can be saved. Rendering to God means living in this world, but not being of the world. Not letting the world dictate how we live. And finally, we also need to understand that rendering to God means more than just outward acts of obeisance. You see, that's what the Pharisees were really good at. They were great at outward acts of obeisance. They were great at looking like they were really righteous and holy. In Matthew chapter 6, and verse 2, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, that they may be praised by others. In verse 5 of Matthew 6, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. In verse 16, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. They were great at these outward acts that others could see and think that they were righteous and holy. But they weren't interested in what God was really interested in. In Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, beginning at verse 25 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lies. They could pretend to be righteous to everyone, but they didn't start with the heart which is what God is interested in. You see, if they'd started with the heart first, then the outward acts that God wanted would have followed. But we can go all day long through outward acts, pretending to be righteous, and never truly be God's servant. How many folks are great at going to church? But they're not so good at walking with God. It's not enough to show up. It's not enough to put some money in the plate where everybody can see. It's not enough to sing out loud so that everybody thinks you're wonderful. You've got to get the heart right. And then the other things will take care of themselves. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus demonstrated this. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And then as he explained the parable down in verse 16, he said, Are you also still without understanding? Matthew 15:17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus says it's the heart where all those sins originate. If we clear up the heart, then the rest will take care of itself. This is what rendering to God does for us. It gets the heart right. This is what Jesus was telling us. He wasn't talking to us about how much money we're supposed to give the Lord. He was talking to about talking to us about how much of ourselves we're supposed to give to the Lord. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's but render to God what belongs to God.